Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast. I have Laurent Keller. He's a professor at the University of Lausanne, uh, the Department of Ecology and Evolution. And we're going to talk about uh, some interesting research he's working on related to ants. So, Laurent, thanks for coming. Hello. So, tell me about your research. Uh, yes, so I work on ants because they are social and I'm interested in social behavior. So, we are studying uh, ants. How many different kinds of ants are there in the world? Um, there are about uh, 14,000 species uh, which have been described. Uh, most of them live in the tropics. So it's a relatively rich group of insects, but not very, uh, uh, very important compared to Coleoptera, for example. But what's really unusual about them is that they, they are very common. They are everywhere and they account for a huge amount of the animal biomass. Actually, it's about 10% of the weight of all animals together on Earth. Wow. Which is equivalent is a single species, which is similar. And this is humans, basically. So the weight of, of ants uh, is about the same as the weight of humans on Earth. That's amazing. You know, I only know a little bit about ants. I know there's like carpenter ants and leaf cutter ants and things like that. What what are the kind of ants you study? What it's, uh, is there anything special about their behavior? Yeah, I work with several types of uh, species. Uh, we have done work a lot with fire ants, which is a species which uh, occurs also in the U.S., but which is native from South America and which has been brought in the U.S. by uh, humans. And we are interested in these species because there are two social forms, a form with a single queen and a form with uh, multiple queens. And during our studies uh, with my colleague Kenneth Ross from the University of Georgia, we found that uh, there is a genetic basis for this difference in social organization. And it's actually due to what we call a social chromosome. Uh, so it's a single chromosome in which are many genes which are linked together. And uh, this uh, underlies this variation in social organization with either one or multiple queens. And it's associated also with difference in dispersal. For example, the form with single queen, the queens are large, they are fat, they disperse far away to start a new colony on their own. They will lay eggs that they will feed from their body reserves, so alone they can start a new colony on their own. By contrast, in the form with multiple queens, they produce smaller queens, which don't fly so far away. And instead of starting a colony on their own, they return to an established colony of the same social form, where they will be accepted. And then they will start eventually maybe new colonies nearby by leaving the mother colony on food with workers. So it's two very different types of social organization, uh, which is due to this uh, super gene, uh, this group of linked genes, which underlie all those differences. Oh, that's interesting. When there's multiple queens, how do they know? Is there a dominant queen or they all work together? Do they, they fight? They will all work together, actually. There's, um, there's maybe a slight dominance, but not so much. Uh, they will work together. 
And um, usually they are related in South America. They would be friendly sisters. In North America, it's a bit different. They are less aggressive, so they let and the whole type of queens. So the relatedness is extremely low. Uh, but in the native range, um, from where they come from, then they will be related. So it's a large family with several reproductive queens, which frequently are sisters. So what does a typical ant colony look like? Like what are the different kinds of ants in it? And then how, how big do they get? So it depends uh, very much on the species. Some species can form small colonies, which will have only about 20 workers. And some of them, like army ants, can have colonies which can contain several, uh, maybe up to one million individuals. So there's huge variation in colony size. Some species have workers which are all of the same size. Some of them are workers which vary in size. Some have even discrete group of workers which differ in size. And it can go up to three or different groups of uh, workers, which can be quite uh, different. So sometimes in some species, the smallest workers is much smaller than the head of the larger workers in the same colony. Well, besides queens and workers, what other kinds of ants are there in a colony? So there would be one or several queens in the colony, and then there are those workers. They are all females. <clears throat> and males are produced only once in the year. Uh, it will be usually in spring or in summer, depends on which species but they don't stay very long in the nest. So as soon as they are mature, they are kicked off from the colony by the workers. They will depart on a mating flight. The queens fly, they also have wings, the young queens. They will depart on a mating flight at the same time. And then they will mate on the wing. And then after the male will die, as soon as he lands on the ground, he will be killed by other insects, usually even ants. Contrast the queen, um, after she will store the sperm of the male, start a new colony, and she would use all her life the sperm that she stored. And the, the queen ants can be very long in some species, up to th almost 30 years. And they use the sperm of this male they mated with uh, maybe 30 years ago. So they store the sperm, they have sperm banks, like we have sperm banks, but they keep the sperm alive in the wow. spermatica, which is a special organ uh, to, to keep the sperm. Do young queens mate with more than one male and store multiple sperms or just one? This depends on the species. In some species, queens mate with only one male. And in some other species, they can mate with multiple males, up to eight or nine males, depending on the species. But this they will do only when they are very young during the mating flight. After they will shed their wing and then they start their new colony and they will never mate anymore in their life. So it's a one-time event um, and they will use the sperm of their dead males uh, all their life. That's crazy. How do you know that? How have people discovered that? Well, we know that that they, people have done experiments in the lab. We've never seen a um, mature queens to mate again with some males. They cannot leave the nest anymore. And usually there is no way to find males. And usually in their colony, all the males they will produce will be their own offspring. So it means they will mate with their sons. And that's why they don't mate anymore. And sometimes they can even run out of sperm. This is not very common, but some queens which live very long, it may happen that they have no more sperm when they are old and so the colony will die. Very strange. So since males are only born once or twice a year, um, do the rest of the worker ants that are female, do they live the entire year? Or do they, uh, do they undergo like parthenogenesis and produce more workers? Or they only can produce more by, by mating? actually so most uh, species 
the queens has estimated to produce offspring. There are a few species we can, which can reproduce by parthenogenesis. And in our lab, we have found actually some species which have unusual, unusual mode of reproduction. Um, for example, some species, they will produce new queens by parthenogenesis, and they produce workers by sexual reproduction. And this is an advantage because when you reproduce sexually, it's good because you create genetic diversity in your colony. But if you produce offspring, your offspring by sexual reproduction, it's bad because you transmit only half of your genes to your offspring. So the other half come from another males, which is unrelated to you. So those ants, they get both the benefits of sex by having sex to produce workers and so to have genetic diversity in the colony. And also the benefit of asexual reproduction because they produce a, the reproductive endurance that they produce will be by parthenogenesis or clonal reproduction. So they can transmit all their genes to, to their uh, reproductive offspring. And this is quite interesting because uh, in such a species, we have found some of them, they produce most of the queens by clonal reproduction. Some are, are produced sexually, but we found another species where all queens are produced clonally and workers are completely sterile. And in ants, males are usually produced from unfertilized eggs. So they are haploid. And when the egg is fertilized, it gives a female, a queen or a worker. So if a queen produces all queens clonally, if all workers are sterile, it will mean that in that species, males will have a zero reproductive success because their, their sperm will only fertilize the eggs which give rise to the workers which are sterile, so they can never transmit their genes. But we found that in that species, actually, males also reproduce clonally, which is really exceptional for animals. And they do so... Uh, the sperm enters the egg, it removes the maternal genome, so you get a new haploid individual which develops into a male, and this male is a clone of its father. So in that species, all queens are produced clonally from their mother, all males are produced clonally from their father, so there is no more gene flow between males and females because uh, it's like two species, one which has only males and one which has only um, females, the queens, but they still need, need each other to produce the workers, uh, which are like the summer, like sexually produced. But otherwise, males and females are genetically quite different. Oh, so in some colonies, the workers are sterile. In some, do they mate with males once a year or no? No, the only part of it in Genesis. Now, the workers are usually, they can be either completely sterile some of in some species, they can reproduce, but they cannot mate. So it means they can produce only males. And usually they will not reproduce when the queen is present. Only the queen reproduces. But if the queen dies, then workers start to reproduce, but they will produce only uh, males. So the colony will die eventually, but they can still produce some offspring, which will then disperse. And that's the end of the colony after. What about amongst the workers? Are there ones that are like nursery ones that care for the, you know, the newly forming ants or do they only have one job the workers like is there any division of labor there's um, a strong division of labor but not like humans because in humans we learn a job and we do it all our life in ants they all start to be nurses and at some point during their lives they shift to uh, do other tasks the cleaning keeping the nest uh, in good shape and when they're even a bit older they will start to leave the nest and to start to forage so it's an age-based division of labor. And this is really good because it means they send the older workers out 
And this is a dangerous task. So they send the old individuals, the less damageable individuals, to do the dangerous work. Uh, in contrast to humans, who tend to send to send young individuals to war or to do uh, dangerous jobs outside. There's no there's no child labor laws for ants. They don't send them out until they're older. <laughs> no, no, but it's a more efficient uh, system in terms of uh, allocation of uh, of human resources. So if I see ants, you know, on my windowsill or, you know, on my counter, how old would they be on average, do you think? So the workers, it depends on species. In most species, they will live between three months and one year and a half. And so they tend to be a bit the older individuals of the colony. So probably they are between two, two months and one year and a half, basically. That's the one the workers you will see uh, which go outside foraging. Back to the queens that will store the sperm for sometimes decades what you said they store it in a special organ um what does that storage look like how is the sperm kept alive what what form is it in in storage in the queen does anyone know what that looks like that's a very good question because of course the sperm is living so it needs some energy and it means uh and in the, the the organ is it just a it's just a pocket but there are some glands and most likely it's not so well studied, but it seems that the, the queens produce some substances which goes to feed uh, the sperm, basically. Nobody knows how, actually really how it works, but they need, the sperm need energy to survive, to move. So it means the queens in some way must be uh, feeding the sperm. Uh, they don't have a mouse, of course, but there must be some energy getting into the, the sperm to keep it alive for 15, 20 or 30 years. But um, this is something which would be interesting to study. Yeah, what's the name of the organ called where they store the sperm? Uh, spermatica. Oh, spermatica, okay. Yeah. Do you many know if there's researchers studying it? Uh, many insects have uh, spermatica to, to, to store the sperm, but uh, usually they can store it sometimes a few months in some species. But uh, ants would be uh, really unusual to, to be able to keep the sperm uh, several years or maybe 20 years. Do you know any researchers that are studying it, or it's an understudied area? Uh, there is no really research focusing on that. There was, I seen a paper not long ago, but I don't remember who was uh, studying that. Uh, but there are, it was a study they did uh, aside, and nobody is really working full time on that. But that would be actually a very interesting uh, topic to work on. Yeah, what about the morphology of the ant sperm? Do they look at all like human sperm or other, other animals? I think it's quite similar, but it's not well studied either. So when you look through it, it looks like a bit sperm. Sperm can be quite variable among species, but there's mm-hmm. nothing very exceptional, uh, I think, for the ant sperm. And, very, and only a few species have been looked at. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. Oh, okay. You said you worked on fire ants and, and other kinds. How do you, like, what, what interests you about ants? What are you researching in particular? So that was uh, this. Um, so the main topic would be the genetic basis of social organization. That is the super gene we found in ferns. Actually, there are several other ant species in which there is a super gene with several group genes which influence social organization. So it's probably quite common that some ants can have uh, multiple forms, social forms, which has a genetic basis. We are interested in this division of labors. So to study that, we develop a system of tracking uh, where we take an image of picture of the colony 
10 times a second. And we put little tags on every individual, which allow us to get the exact position and orientation of every individual in the economy. And we can track individuals during seven months. And so we can really uh, determine all interaction in the economy. And so we can reconstruct a network of interactions. If you want, it's uh, the Facebook of the end colony. And we have very good information about uh, this network of uh, interaction. We can see how they change behavior over time. And this is, we do a lot of studies about that. We can look also how they react when you have a pathogen. For example, we have been able to show that they have a type of quarantine when there's a pathogen. So they decrease interaction between different group of ants. This is what we try to do in humans now with, uh, with the coronavirus. But they, the ants are able to know what they are infected. And then they change their behavior to infected individuals who stay a bit outside of the colony. And even the other one, when they perceive that some individuals are infected in the colony, they make more subgroups within the colony. And the idea is to decrease interaction between subgroups so that not all individuals are infected. And especially they keep the queen and the brood, the babies, quite far away. Uh, so it's really highly partitioned to decrease the rate of uh, spread of the virus in the colony. That's amazing. How do you track each ant in the colony? How does that work? So each of them has an individual tag, um, a cut bar. And so we take a picture and we analyze in real time with uh, we need several computers to identify those cut bars. And then we can get the exact position and orientation of the ant. And so we can know also when they interact. So we, for example, we take an angle, we know exactly where their head is. We know if they can touch each other with the antenna. And if they stay more than three seconds in a position where they can touch each other with the antenna, we know it's an interaction. And so we have constructed such networks where we have millions of interaction. So it's the most complete uh, Facebook network which has ever been constructed for any species. Because usually for humans or other type of species, you, you only have some of the interaction for some of the individuals, but it's impossible to track all individuals in the, in the population. So our data are quite interesting and we can do a lot of analysis and quite a few people are interested actually to look those data. That's amazing, but how do you tag them though? Literally, what does that look like? So it's a little, <laughs> they're very tiny. We use a special paper Actually, it's from banknotes. We make them printed by a company which makes banknotes, actually, in Switzerland. So it's a very, and so you can print it very precisely because some of the tags we are using are very small. They would be like one millimeter by one millimeter that we can tag on the end. But on them, there are many squares. Um, and so with those squares, uh, some are white and, and black and white squares. Uh, we. There's an individual tag which is different uh, between every end. And there are at least four squares between every end which, which are different. So we can recognize them without any errors. It needs a bit of <laughs> precision when you have to, to glue the tags on the ends. But uh, my students are really good to do that. Oh, so they, they'll like glue a little tiny piece of paper to the back of the ants or something? Exactly. While well, on the thorax of the end, on the top of the thorax. And we take picture with cameras. Uh, on, on the top of the colony. It's in infrared, so they don't see the red color. So it, it's, it's in the night, but so we can see them. Oh, and then the pattern of the paper on the back of each ant tells you who is who? Exactly. Oh, how do they, I mean, 
how do they stop the ants from moving and not break them when they attach this paper to them? Do they do they like a, a tiny little uh, tweezer and they they put a, a tiny spot of glue on it and just go boop and push the ant on its butt or what? Like, how do we they should, stop the ant from running away? <laughs> we fix the ant, so that depends on which species. So, but we have to fix a bit the ant or to cool them. So when they are getting cold, they don't move anymore. And then we glue it, and then we get them not to move for a little bit until uh, the glue is uh, becomes really hard. And then we can let them go. And usually it stays. Sometimes after a few weeks, they will fall down. But So we track them uh, regularly so we can glue a new tag when they lose them um, over time because we check them every two or three days. Oh. How long does it take to tag each ant? Like the poor graduate students, they... If they have to tag a hundred ants, like does it take them hours or how long does it take them? How more? I think for tagging a colony, maybe they can tag a colony or maybe a hundred. So we have we we study colonies which are not too big, maybe up to two hundred individuals. So I'm not sure. Maybe it takes a day to tag a colony to do it well. So it's it's quite <laughs> it's quite a lot of work. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so what have you observed when you look at the ants? Like what what do you see that you couldn't see before? So that's how I mentioned to you, we could really construct this network of interaction. We could see when do they do the transition from nurses to foragers. We have shown that it's a type of stochastic event. So there's a given probability at any time that an ant does a transition. And we are doing studies like the one where we infect a colony, we see how they change a network. So it's really allow us to to really track uh, how the, how they react to changes in the environment or internal changes like pathogens and how they react uh, at the colony level to to really make something which is uh, quite resilient. Well, okay, so you can see them changing from one form to another, you know, from nurses to workers. Um, do the ants uh, are they um, of a hive mind? Do they act independently? Like what? What kind of interactions do you see during the day and night amongst the ants? So they interact a lot with each other. So they know, so they are non-randomly distributed in the nest. So nurses will stay close to the brood. And actually there are, there are chemicals on the ground. And even that, even though they cannot see in the colony, they know more or less where they are. If they are close to the brood, the queen, or in the periphery of the nest. Um, so it's a non-random type of interaction. Nurses interact mostly with nurses, foragers with foragers. And you have a type of intermediate individuals which interact both with nurses and foragers. But for example, the nurses rarely interact with, uh, with foragers, which is good because <clears throat> the pathogens would be encountered outside of the nest, where, and this would be the foragers. So when they come to the nest, they never go to the queen or to the baby. So they don't infect those individuals. And all the food will transit through those intermediate individuals. And those ones, they can detect if an individual is infected. So they will try to avoid to interact with these individuals. And then they will also decrease interaction in the groups when there are some infected individuals in the colony. It's a quite, so ants have learned their social since, humans are social since not very long. It's a few hundred thousand years. But human, uh, ants are social since 100 million of years. So it's a really evolved, sophisticated mechanism in the society to fight against pathogens, which like uh, social behavior, because it's perfect to, to spread in a, in a group, in a species. I don't know if you feel like it's unethical or not, but have you tried experiments with the ants, like um, 
you know, causing a problem in the colony, like collapsing a tunnel or introducing a foreign ant or, you know, something else and seeing what the ants do. We haven't done much of those type of things in our group, but uh, some people have done that also with termites. And ants are quite good to perceive when there's a problem and they will start to solve it. They use simple rules. There's probably less communication for such things that what people think. It's, it's probably more every ant is using its, its, its own assessment to do some task, and they don't really go to recruit other individuals to do things when something is wrong inside. Recruitment will occur outside of the nest, but inside it's mostly each individual which behave as a single independent uh, unity and which decides to do things when things need to be done. Oh, you don't see a lot of cooperation in certain species of ants and less than others? Yeah, there's a lot of Russian cooperation, and cooperation is mostly outside, so they will cooperate to, to carry praise and so, but again, it's it's not like they, they say, yeah, I take this side, I go on that side. It's Every universe is using similar rules, which uh, effectively are quite efficient when they all use the same rule, basically. So it's a type of self-organization which occurs and makes a world society quite efficient. Do you ever see renegade behavior from ants where they don't act for the colony and they act for themselves? Yeah, there can be selfish behavior, for, for example, about reproduction. Sometimes some workers try to reproduce, and then they will be attacked by other workers which can perceive that they are reproduced. Because of this strange system of um, sex determination where males are deployed and females are deployed, an effect is that actually females are more related to their sisters and to, to their brothers. Because from their father, two females always receive exactly the same genes, but the brother doesn't have any father. So one half of the genes in the worker are never present in two males. And so they're three times more related to, to their sisters and to their brothers. And even though they cannot reproduce, they try to transmit more genes by trying to produce more females more sisters and males. And the queen actually decides whether she produces male or female eggs. But the workers can manipulate the sex ratio. If they do so, they kill males because they want to produce more sisters, which are more related. And so they kill the males and they use those males to feed their sisters. So you can have also some, some stuff which is not always very nice in ant colonies. Hmm. And what does the queen do when she's not producing males? She just like hangs out and eats and sits around yeah. all day? Or? She's yeah, producing workers all the time. No, but she's laying a lot of eggs, so it depends on species. But in some species, she she will lay thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of eggs in one in uh, one year. So it's really a, a big factory, reproductive factory, and it's very uh, takes a lot of energy to produce eggs. So they are quite uh, egg laying uh, machines, which is quite quite a job. Do you ever try to expose? some of the workers to like new stimuli or environments and have them take it back to the, you know, to the main area and see what, what the behavior of the colony does or changes. Um, this, yeah, that's an interesting uh, question. Actually, we are starting to do things like that um, to, to, we are starting to do experiments where we expose workers to different things and we see how they react and whether they can communicate in the colony. We even developed some small robots, which we can now make them. They start, we can coat them with other, like other workers. They have small antenna, which we think now they start to interact a bit like ants. 
And so we want to try to manipulate things in the colony. For example, a robot can follow another ants, try to communicate with it. And we want to try to do such manipulation um, to see how, how really the social organization uh, is working in the colony. Oh, so you want to make robot ants that will interact with the regular ants? Exactly. And that's uh, it's al almost already working. Does anyone try to like pet the ants or do things with them when they interact with people or other creatures and change how they are? No, nobody is has that, ever. Is that possible? No, I don't think that would be feasible. I don't think um, that one can really train an ant to do stuff like that. Oh, huh. so no one's ever taken like an, an isolated ant or a couple of ants and put them in the you know like a little ant farm and tried to do things with them to get them to do different behaviors. Yeah, <laughs> but, but uh, Richard, maybe that's something you should try to do. <laughs> I agree. We can provide you an ant colony and, and you'd show us how you train an ant. I don't know. So if a colony doesn't have the queen, what will happen to it? Will it, you know, if I, if I steal a whole bunch of workers out of a, out of a colony and put them in a little ant farm, will, will they die pretty quickly or what will happen to them? It depends on the species. Some species, the workers, if they're outside the colony, are really, they don't do well. In some species, even they will die because they're too much stressed. And even if you give them food, uh, we show that sometimes in a few days they will die, even if they have food and water to drink. So it creates a huge stress. Now, if you have a group of workers, they will be less sad. And when they can reproduce, they will start to develop their ovaries and start to produce some males. But then, and they will survive, but they, there's no more workers produced, so the colony will always become smaller and collapse at the end. And what about the structure of the, uh, do they call it a hive? Or what do they call it, that the, the structure that the ants live in? The hive would be only for honeybee, but the, the nest, I don't know. Yeah, the nest. The nest. Okay. Yeah, what are the, amongst different species, what do the nests look like? Do they look very different? Uh, it's very different. Some live in the ground, they just do tunnels. Some have more complex structures in the ground, which can go several meters underground with more complex tunnels and caves. Some of them will uh, live in trees, uh, some of them in plants, in fruits. So there are all types of uh, different types of nests. So it's extremely variable. But is the queen in like some chamber in the middle of the nest? Or, uh, like, you know, is it? Are there any commonalities of structure, no matter where the ants go? Like, do they? Um, do you look at uh, the tunnels and the branching and the structure of it? And again, are there any similarities, design rules that you can see? Well, usually the queen will be in the most protected part of the nest, so it would be either deep um, underground. Some species even don't do a nest, uh, like some ants. They really all workers come together in the night and are very aggressive and. Um, and, um, and the queen will just be in the middle of this group of aggressive ants. So the what's most, yeah, the common pattern is the ant is in the most protected place of the nest. Okay. Well, what, yeah, last, last couple of questions. What do you hope to figure out with your research over the next year or two? So we continue to understand this genetic basis of behavior to see what genes is doing exactly what. We want to understand how those genes came together in on this chromosome. And the other important topic is also understand this division of labor, what's the regulation of division of labor, what type of interactions are important to regulate the overall social organization of science. For that, we use our tracking system. 
you think ant populations are increasing or decreasing? You know, are humans and human activity really interfering with them, or are they okay? So it depends which species. Some species are really suffering from humans, and some of them, they like them. Actually, there are many ant species which are transported by humans uh, over the years. There are 100, about 150 species which have been transported from one continent to another one. And so for those ones, it's really good to have humans around because they've been able to colonize new habitats. But then they also disturb those habitats because they may, uh, they may outcompete some uh, native species. So, so there are some species winning from humans and some of them losing. Interesting. Yeah, I guess people have sequenced ants, right? To look at uh, all their genes and... Yes, so we were the first group starting to sequence them, and then there have been several other groups, and now there are about, I don't know, maybe 50 or 60 ant species which have been sequenced. Some of them high quality, some lower quality, but now we start to have some, a few good genomes for the ants. And what about their microbiome? Do they have like more of a bacterial one, or do they have more of a fungal one? I just, for some reason, picture ants and fungus either getting along or not getting along with them being exposed to it a lot. So they have a microbiome, and um, in some species, there are some bacteria which are extremely common. Uh, so it's some, so yeah, like uh, most organisms have a microbiome, which is quite important. It's best known in honeybee because honeybee are special because there are very few bacteria inside about, between about 15 species only of bacteria. So it's a very good system to study. And actually we are also with a colleague doing some studies on the, on honeybees because we can remove all bacteria and implement one, two, or three different species and see what's the role of every species, which is something you can do, but not in other species, like in humans, where you have hundreds or thousands of species of bacteria inside a single individual. Do you see commonalities between honeybee structure and ants, or are they like very, very different? No, they're very similar with the queen, the mud of... Um, Sex determination, also caste determination, what's make you becoming a queen or worker. But there are a lot of uh, similar things here, evolve very similar mechanisms. And um, what preys on ants? I guess, are there mites that, that prey on them or other ants attack them? Like, what are their biggest predators? Um, it's probably other ants. There's a lot of competition between ant species because they are so common in all types of habitats. One of the main competitors will be other ant species, yes. Okay. Well, very good, Laurent. It's been very interesting. What's the best way for people to find out more about your work? Excellent. Yeah, how can people find out more about your work? Where can they go? We, I have a website. Maybe they can check that. And well, we, we have published several hundreds of Papers. I think there's also a few videos on YouTube and so on, on my work. So there are probably several ways to find some information. Okay. Well, very good. Thank you for coming on the podcast. I really appreciate it. Thanks to you and have a good day. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. 
This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.